rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin, currently chaplain of Cedar Break Retreat Center. And I'm joined by Deacon Ronnie Lostavica, who is in our restorative justice ministry. We worked together for many years. And uh, we are addressing in a series of conversations the topic of suicide, which has become a topic that is uh, on the minds and hearts of many of our incarcerated flock, of their families, and of course, on the minds of many souls who are not living the incarcerated life as well. In our last segment, we covered uh, why do people commit suicide? What can some of the initial responses be for those of us who are left behind that deal with complicated uh, feelings uh, and emotions? And uh, today we're going to move on to other topics, including uh, the question that often gets asked, uh, does a person who commits suicide go to hell? Before we go there, I want to introduce us to a venerable, not yet a saint, but in the process of being a saint, named Matt Talbot. He is known as Venerable Matt Talbot, the patron of addictions and alcoholics. And although he's not yet canonized, Venerable Matt Talbot may be considered a patron of those suffering from alcoholism. One of the things we learned in our first segment on suicide was this is about relief from pain, not choosing death. And many times that pain that seems insurmountable can't be overcome and death looks like the option is rooted in mental illness and oftentimes mental illness with addiction on the side. So here we have somebody who's a patron of those with addictions and alcoholics. Those who suffer from addictions also often deal with emotional troubles. And for this reason, it's important to remember those as well. And to Venerable Matt, here's the story on him. He was the second of 12 children, born in 1856. In his early years, he knew little security or stability. That is the life of so many of our friends and flock in the uh, incarcerated state. They didn't know security when they were young. They didn't know stability. Compulsory school attendance was not in force in his time. And so Matt never attended school regularly. Many of our friends the same way by choice. At the age of 12, Matt got his first job. It was in a wine bottling store. And that's when his excessive drinking began. One evening, when he was 28 years old, he found a priest, went to confession, and, quote, took the pledge for three months. Many times he felt he would not be able to hold out for three months. But within the year, he renewed the pledge for life, never touching alcohol again, 41 more years until he died. His resolve was maintained by a new life of much prayer, daily mass, hard work, and much penance. Prayer, mass, work, and penance. Matt Talbot collapsed and died of heart failure in 1925. Penitential chains were found on his body after his death, and it has been said that from his early teens until age 28, Matt's only aim in life had been liquor. But from that point forward, his only aim was God. Lord, in your servant, Matt Talbot, you have given us a wonderful example of triumph over addiction, 
of a devotion to duty and of lifelong reverence for the most holy sacrament. May his life of prayer and penance give us courage to take up our crosses and follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, if it be your will that your beloved servant should be glorified by your church, make known by your heavenly favors the power he enjoys in your sight. We ask this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And I would add to that, for any of our listeners, if you appeal to Venerable Matt Talbot, patron of addictions and alcoholics, and find miraculous cures occurring, don't forget to contact those who are involved in his process of canonization, because that will be valuable information for them, and you may have been a chosen instrument of God himself to further the cause of this holy man. With his intercession, we turn to the first question of the day as we continue in our Knights of Columbus Veritas series on coping with suicide. Does the person who commits suicide go to hell? Is Judas, for instance, in hell? Should Catholics pray or offer masses for those who committed suicide? In our readings from the 32nd Sunday in Ordinary Time, we, we, saw, we read from the second book of Maccabees, and then we also heard from Luke's Gospel, and, and they speak about the matters of life after death. And I think for many of us as, as Catholics and, and Christians, uh, we wonder if committing suicide endangers one's salvation. And although suicide violates the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church um, reassures us And I'll quote from Catechism, this is from number 2283, that we should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. By ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for beneficial repentance. The church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. This also reinforces the importance of praying and having masses offered for those who have committed suicide as one would for any other loved one who has died. Furthermore, as stated earlier, most people who commit suicide are suffering from depression or some other mental disorder. The Catechism in 2282 teaches that those factors can diminish responsibility for the taking of one's own life. Grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of one committing suicide. When those factors are present, the church recognizes that the person's ability to make a free choice was likely impaired. So some faithful wonder about Judas, uh, who had taken his own life after betraying Jesus and believe or have been told that he must be in hell. First of all, the church has never formally identified any particular person as who has having been condemned to hell because such judgment is left to God alone. Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful. That we're not the judge of any soul, that that's alone left to God. And this is not to say that the church denies that anyone is in hell. It's not saying that at all. But some assume that Judas is in hell because of his despair. That scripture also recounts Judas's remorse and attempt return of the silver he received for betraying Christ. Again, we look to the Catechism in uh, section 1861, where it states, um, which tells us that although we can judge that an act in itself is a grave offense, 
we must entrust judgment of the persons to the justice and mercy of God. Let me say that again. We must entrust judgment of persons to the mercy and justice of God. In Christian hope, we are called to trust in God's mercy for our loved ones as well as for ourselves. So let's go over that again, all of it, because this is a big question for a lot of folks. We hear a lot of things growing up. Uh, We hear things from people that are very credible in our life of faith development and formation, and yet sometimes those aren't always exactly accurate in critical moments when we are trying to process through our involvement in the life of someone who has chosen to take their life. So several um, different paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church are cited here. The first one was number 2283. The Church reassures us we should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. We should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. By ways known to Him alone, God can provide the opportunity for beneficial repentance. The Church prays for persons who have taken their own lives, and this also reinforces the importance of praying and having masses offered for those who have committed suicide, as one would for any other loved one who has died. Furthermore, as stated earlier, most people who commit suicide are suffering from depression or some other mental disorder. Which brings us to the second quote from the Catechism, number 2282, teaches that these factors, the depression, mental disorder, can diminish responsibility for the taking of one's own life. Quote, grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. When these factors are present, the church recognizes that the person's ability to make a free choice was likely impaired. And I can tell you, when that was brought up in seminary formation, there was like a collective sigh of relief in the group of we as seminarians back there. This is 26 plus years ago for me since I've been ordained for 26, going on 27 years. Collective sigh of relief, because it's a tension, T-E-N-S-I-O-N. That is, that's there when suicide is afoot. And now you're preparing for a massive Christian burial as the, the clergy involved. You've talked to the family about the person. They've been candid enough to let you know that there were struggles there with addiction or mental illness or whatever it might have been. And to, to hear the catechism of the Catholic Church say this so beautifully and clearly is one of those ways that a, a type of consolation can be embraced by those who are left behind. But it's got a companion side to it as well that Deacon Ronnie covered so well about Okay, so they're diminished, but what about them going to hell? Well, they shift the conversation in this, in this pamphlet just a little bit to help us all understand where the church is in general about the matter of who goes to hell and who doesn't. Because in prison, those of us on the outside may not know, those of you who are living on the inside in, in the incarcerated life do know that there is a multiplicity of different religious ideas flowing through the halls and and dorms and pods and cell blocks of every prison of religious ideology. 
and not all of them are consistent with what we teach in the Catholic Church. Many are in, in perfect harmony, but many are not. And one of those is on the matter of who gets to say who's going up and who's going down. And this makes it very clear. The church has never formally identified any particular person as having been condemned to hell because such judgments are left to God alone. And uh, as we said just a minute ago, again, the, the, the quote from the Catechism 1861, although we can judge that an act is in itself a grave offense, which is required for permanent separation from God, which is what hell is, we must entrust judgment of persons to the justice and mercy of God. In Christian hope, we are called to trust in God's mercy for our loved ones as well as for ourselves. So if you're starting to get down on yourself about the feelings that you had or have about a person that's committed suicide, like you're angry with them, ease up. That mercy that we want God to extend to them is available to you as well. To that end, let's turn to the next section in the pamphlet here. How does one grieve this type of loss? Is it possible to move on? We all, as individuals, grieve differently. And there are some typical patterns to grieving in the process of moving on. So early on in the process, the initial experience may be one of shock. Uh, survivors often react to disbelief to the news that a loved one has committed suicide and even find themselves continuing to deny it at times, perhaps believing the death did not occur or feeling that the event seems unreal. The, the, game, the, the guilt and the shame that may, many experience after a suicide can intensify grief and make it more difficult to manage than any other type of bereavement. So the intensity of the pain um, is there, and it can cause some survivors to go into isolation. They just simply isolate themselves. Although this may be a self-protective coping, uh, healing a strategy in the short term, uh, the continued isolation can make uh, problems worse and delay the healing process. So the, the emotional numbness is, is another type of uh, uh, typical early reaction to the bereavement uh, by suicide. Uh, this is the body's way of helping the survivor to make the necessary decisions to complete the task that must be accomplished, such as making funeral arrangements and speaking to other mourners at the funeral. And while to the outside observer it may seem that the survivor is coping very well, some survivors may feel guilty about their ability to take care of practical matters immediately following the suicide and their inability to cry or even question their love for the deceased. So moreover, some survivors uh, may see a friend or a family member who appears to be in greater distress, which can lead to feeling of guilt, guilt and feelings of guilt or critical judgment from the others. So this emotional numbness may fade in a few days or week and may continue to come and go over the next year, but at some point, Painful emotions are likely to take over as the grieving process progresses. If the numbness is prolonged, lasting for months after the suicide, it may be an indicator that the person should seek professional help from a physician or mental health therapist. One of the things that you mentioned just now in that section, Deacon Ronnie, was uh, them talking about, okay, you, you may feel shock, you may feel guilt and shame, 
the intensity of pain goes up and down. Sometimes it's sustained as, as a kind of a, a wave. I'm using the image of a wave crashing in on the beach that just doesn't stop moving into this emotional numbness. And they talk about how you can, you know, begin to kind of power through that to take care of things that have to get taken care of, such as making funeral arrangements, speaking to other mourners at the funeral. For our incarcerated flock, that piece isn't even there. Uh, by and large, even though they do have the right to petition to attend a funeral under certain circumstances, it's not very often granted and for fairly obvious reasons in terms of security and things of that nature. But the reality for those of our friends who don't know much about the incarcerated life, by and large, if I'm incarcerated and someone who is uh, on the outside dies or even someone who's on the inside dies, I'm not going to get to go to the funeral. They don't get to have that beautiful experience of the kind of uh, movement of three parts in our Catholic way of saying goodbye, the vigil for the deceased the night before a massive Christian burial, the massive Christian burial itself, and the graveside service where we really do some significant closure work. So now you're in prison and you don't get to benefit in any of that. One thought that comes to mind is talk to whomever it is that's there representing your Catholic faith in your unit and have them walk you through what those rituals are. Get them to bring the the Christian funeral book. Um, a lot of parishes have pamphlets for grieving families to choose the readings uh, for their masses and the prayers for their masses. It's kind of like what they do for marriage preparation, except it's for funeral preparation. Get them to bring that book. Maybe let yourself go through that like you are planning the funeral for the person that died so that you can personalize it to the way that that person's presence in your life, in your unit, impacted you. What readings would I choose for their massive Christian burial? What prayers would I select of the options that are available? What would I preach if I was the preacher for somebody at the massive Christian burial for my friend Jane or John or whoever it might be? And allow yourself the gift of literally entering into the, the prescribed ritual of the church to assist you in the grieving process that you don't get to participate in like we do on the outside because you're on the inside. I think those are things that, that could really be uh, of assistance uh, to you. Um, as we pick up back with the pamphlet again uh, on this matter of how does one grieve this type of loss, is it possible to move on? Some of the other things you may encounter, confusion. It's another common early reaction to bereavement by suicide. Sometimes the unexpected and sudden nature of a loved one's death by suicide makes it difficult to comprehend the reality and permanence of the situation. Difficulties with memory and concentration can occur. So if you're experiencing that, I'm, I'm not remembering things I'm supposed to be doing. I can't concentrate on stuff in my, in my education class. You're just experiencing some of those recognized things that are there when somebody is in the depths of dealing with the death of somebody by suicide. Other things that can pop up, anxiety and fear can be triggered, causing you, the survivor, to become overly suspicious or cautious and constantly on the lookout for some other bad thing to happen because the world has suddenly become an unsafe place. Now, I would dare say, Deacon Ronnie, that this is one of those places that our incarcerated flock probably has one up on people on the outside. Living the incarcerated life puts you in essentially a 
difficult, challenging, you could even describe as unsafe place. So your skills are honed for survivability. And you're probably going to be a little bit more adept at this kind of thing than those of us on the outside who have a more sense of comfort and security. And then suicide jars us into a sense of instability. You're already in an unstable life in the incarcerated life to begin with. You know, however much structure we try to provide, it's still at, at a place of, of less stability than it is on the outside. So you're probably going to be a little bit more adept at, at handling that, but you still may experience it. And then it mentions another one right after that, Deacon Ronnie. Why don't you, you pick up there? Sure. It goes on to speak about the, the matter of de- denial uh, for survivors of suicide. It's not uncommon in the early stages of grieving. Denial helps some people to feel as though they have some control in the face of this, this terrible reality of suicide. But part of accepting the reality of the death is to get the facts straight about how the suicide happened, although for some simply saying the word suicide can be difficult in itself. Denial may also manifest itself as an inc- in, by an increase in physical problems. These physical reactions may include crying, outbursts, physical exhaustion, problems sleeping, loss of appetite, difficulty con- concentrating, unforgetfulness, uh, um, excuse me, forgetfulness, headaches, nausea, um, digestive problems and the lack of motivation. And ultimately, even if th- this, uh, this progression is slow, accepting the difficult reality of a loved one's death will help survivors to realize that no one has control over the actions of others. And another thing we remind ourselves is that um, when, when life ends for us, a, a, a death, uh, life hasn't ended, it's just changed. And we should always be mindful of that, that life is eternal. I mean, this, this life in this space and time has changed as they move on into eternal life. But also refer uh, and always cling to First Peter 3.15 and always be willing and, re- and ready to give a reason for your hope. And my hope is Jesus Christ. So even in the midst of darkness and most difficult situations, our hope is in the Lord. And I think being attentive to one another in prison and for those of us outside of prison, whether we are caregivers by name, deacon, priest, volunteer, going into the prison system or out in the world, your neighbor, your family members, when people are going through some of this list that was just presented, uh, the physical reactions like crying, outbursts, physical exhaustion, problems sleeping, loss of appetite, difficulty concentrating, all these other digestive problems, et cetera. A lot of times I remember having uh, inmates bring those things to me, uh, whether it was just in casual conversation or as context in, in the confessional. And I will readily admit, I never would have associated those with somebody that's dealing with manifestations of dealing with somebody that, that committed suicide. I wish I had known. I wish I had known that that was another one of those things that I could say to that person when they presented those symptoms to me. I mean, typically my mind would say, well, gee, did you eat something bad? Or gee, um, was the the pod or the cell block particularly unsettled and therefore you weren't getting enough sleep? No. A, a third thing on there or, or in a list of things that you as a caregiver could say to them is, did somebody die? Mm-hmm. Did somebody die there of natural causes? Did somebody commit suicide? You know, I understand that some of these things you're experiencing might be a part of that. They may not be aware of that. 
And I'm sorry that I, you know, I really didn't have that in my toolkit as a, a caregiver while I was in that restorative justice ministry. And so I, I put it out there for all of you in, in repeating it after, after Deacon Ronnie had mentioned it, because those are things that we can gently put on the table asking that question. And they just may be waiting on somebody to invite them to talk about that. I think it calls us all to be attentive, especially when you're living in a dorm setting, uh, to be uh, aware of, of the person that's beside you in terms of what, what they're doing, what they're not doing. And those are all, those are all good questions just to simply ask, hey, what's going on? Uh, what are you, what's, what's going on with you today? You know, that's different than how, how are you? You know, I want to know something about what's going on, not to be nosy, but a sense of genuineness to say, if there's something you need to talk and flesh out, now that's time to do it. And so let's say that you do that, you notice some of those symptoms, you, you ease into the conversation. What are some of the temporary coping mechanisms you might be able to offer that person, or if it's you yourself, in this grieving process? So temporary coping mechanisms are a normal part of the grieving process. Again, I'm quoting from the, 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 uh, the series here and are not a reflection of one's love or devotion. Individual personalities and coping styles affect the grieving process, and not everyone will experience the same reactions. Again, it's important to understand that people experience grief differently, and the apparent level of distress is not a reflection of one's love for the deceased. So, if you're trying to assess yourself and you're you're grieving the loss of somebody, and you, you say gee, I should be more upset than I am. Well, not necessarily. You should be who you are. Uh, God has made us each in in our own way. We all do, as this says, have different coping mechanisms. Um, We're going to have different symptoms of how these things affect us. Deep love doesn't necessarily mean I have to be incapacitated after somebody dies. Uh, It may be a sense of I have tremendous consolation that they're not suffering any longer. So these... uh, these different kinds of coping mechanisms, we just need to recognize that in one another and not judge one another uh, on these things. Um, as the early symptoms of grief, grief subside, other emotions begin to emerge. What other emotions? One must remember that emotions are neither right nor wrong. Rather, it is what one does with them that gives them a moral quality. And that's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church 1767 and 1773 are the numbers. One must remember that emotions are neither right nor wrong. Rather, it is what one does with them that gives them a moral quality. One common reaction to suicide is anger or rage. The bereaved often feel angry with themselves or with the deceased for leaving them and other loved ones with a legacy of what feels like rejection, betrayal, abandonment, and extreme suffering. I have felt that myself, and it's very real. And so you just you, you say to yourself, okay, it's not right, it's not wrong. What I have to do with it is keep it within the moral house that God has provided me through his love and consolation. Blame may be directed at those who were in contact with the deceased near the time of the suicide, at the mental health system, at society itself for stigmatizing mental health, mental illness and suicide. They might believe that suicide was spiteful and have difficulty trusting again after such a great blow. For some, this rejection confirms beliefs that they are unlovable, 
possibly affecting their sense of self-worth and leading them to isolate themselves from others to avoid the risk of being hurt again. Isolation, however, prevents the bereaved from locating support. Along with being angry at the departed, they may simultaneously miss and long for them with intense sorrow and loneliness. In reacting to their inability to change the situation, many survivors experience feelings of powerlessness and helplessness, which can lead to hopelessness and despair. I want to finish up here. We're going to con- continue with this particular aspect of hopelessness and despair in our next segment. Um, in the meantime, um, we would just simply ask the Holy Spirit of God to assist us in this moment as we talk about what we work through as we are survivors of those who have taken their own lives. When we're in a time of tremendous emotion, emotion, intense sorrow, loneliness, despair, rejection, there's, a, there's an answer. And that answer is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that spirit that he has sent us is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. And it is shared intimately with you, you personally, by virtue of your baptism, by virtue of your practice of the sacraments, by virtue of your calling upon God, by listening to him in sacred scripture, by listening to him through the liturgy of the church, the love of God is there. And when we continue in our next segment here on Coping with Suicide, remember that though despair and, and that sense of abandonment and rejection may be there, there is an answer, and it is the love of God in Jesus Christ. Walk with me.